0: And welcome back to Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast about the films of tomorrow, Forgotten Today. I'm your host, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time sex bot, Andrew Phillips. I am Robocock. (laughs) Would you
1: like to play a game? No, I would not.
0: And on this episode, we're reviewing a film chosen by you. Yes, you, the fans. That's right, we're reviewing the unfortunate mess that is Brad Bird's Tomorrowland. But first, roll the trailer.
1: With every second that ticks by, the future is running out. Newton? That's not mine. What's not yours?
0: The pen. I've never...
1: What if there was a place?
0: Dad, I just need you to look at
1: this. Does it look weird? A secret place. Impossible. You're not saying this?
0: Casey, stop it! Go away! (coughs) Did you see the dog?
1: I want you to take me there. Take you where? Where'd you get this? Who are you, kid? What you saw was a place where the best and the brightest people in the world came together to actually change it. We've been looking for someone like you for a very long time. Why? Did something happen over there? Something bad? They followed you here?
0: Who? Come on! Get in!
1: How is this a good idea? One way in. They know we're coming, so follow me. All the people, why me?
0: He thinks you can fix the future. to see
1: Tomorrowland,
0: here it comes. 60-year-old Britt Robertson fills no one as 15-year-old Casey Newton, an optimistic troublemaker rebelling against a world of pessimism and doomsaying. When she comes into possession of a magic pin, Casey catches a glimpse of a bright and wonderful future world, and so begins an adventure that will lead her to new worlds, robot children and paedophile scientists, in Brad Bird's Tomorrowland. As I mentioned earlier, Tomorrowland was nominated for consideration on Best Forgotten Movies by you, the listener. When looking back on 2015, we saw that there were many films that didn't quite land with audiences in the same way that their makers wanted them to. So we threw out a few names to our audience, including Terminator Genesis, Michael Mann's Black Hat, Fant4Stick4, Tomorrowland, Seventh Son, and out of that lot, they chose Tomorrowland Mm -hmm. as our episode. I think any of them could have been an episode, yeah, and some of them still might be. I actually forgot to list Jupiter Ascending amongst the options because that is a film that's so forgettable I forgot to list it as a forgotten film. So, (laughs) you know, maybe that's another one to hold back. Yeah. So, anyway, you chose Tomorrowland and it's a decision I wholeheartedly agree with. Now, Andy, before this episode, did you have any experience with Ayn Rand's Tomorrowland?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well... I remember the anticipation that built up before it came out. There was anticipation? Yeah. I mean, initially it was built up as being something that was going to be completely different to anything else we'd really seen. Mm -hmm. And also because it was, in a way, a kind of tie-in to another Disney attraction property. Because obviously we had... Pirates of the Caribbean, The Haunted Mansion, which didn't work at all. And there was talk of John Favreau doing a Magic Kingdom movie for a long, long time.
0: Yes, it just didn't come to pass for one reason or another. And I think Jungle
1: Book has been an extension of that. There was a lot of talk of Brad Bird directing a film called, was it 1906?
0: Yeah, it was an earthquake movie. Yeah. And it was going to be some kind of mystery playing out, some murder mystery
1: during this earthquake. That never came to pass either. No. I think probably due to the failure of John Carter.
0: Yes, and he said that nobody really Really wanted to see a film of that period as well. Mm. He had a hard time trying to get it off the ground with studios because he just thought audiences weren't interested mm. in a film set in the early
1: 1900s. But um, yeah, this property of Tomorrowland came up, and yeah, it was really billed as being a magical place in the sense of wonder and a really upbeat movie because we've not had too many of those recently. No. Beforehand, I think it was during the screening of Mad Max: Fury Road that they had an IMAX preview and it was just one of those ones where you had a little intro from Brad Bird himself, and then you got a scene which was the siege on the house from the audio animatronics. It kind of surprised me just because of the kind of tone of the film that it was. Not that it wasn't good and what it wasn't exciting. It wasn't what I was expecting from yeah. this film called Tomorrowland. And then I think a couple of the days later, you'd seen it and then basically reported in on the experience of watching it, and uh, I didn't actually end up going to see it based on your report.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, I was having a hard time with Tomorrowland because Mm -hmm. none of the trailers had grabbed me whatsoever, and I am a big fan of Brad Bird. The Iron Giant is one of my favourite films of all time. Not Mm -hmm. just like, oh, it's my favourite animated film, it's one of my favourite films of all time. Yeah. So to see the trailers for Tomorrowland, and to know it was a personal project to both him and Damon Lindelof, I guess, I was kind of upset that it wasn't connecting with me in any way. None mm. of the trailers had really reached out to me and grabbed me and so, yeah. like shook me and said, This is a film that you have to see. Yeah, yeah. And then we went to go see Mad Max and beforehand there was a clip that played And that changed my perspective all of a sudden. I was like, "Geez, I really want to see this film now. That looked great. Mm. This little siege on the house by these audio animatronics. And so I went on the first day. The first day it (laughs) opened, I went IMAX. And I was one of three people that were in the screening. Wow. First showing, first day, three people there. Which just goes to show just how few people that marketing campaign
1: connected with. I think there were issues with the UK or the European marketing campaign anyway because they added the little subtitle, which I don't get. A world beyond. A world beyond, which meant nothing. I don't understand why they didn't just call it Tomorrowland because it's the same as calling it a world beyond with the subtitle. Yeah, what does it add? The same with the Warcraft movie calling Warcraft the beginning. I mean, the only moniker of recent times that I've accepted was when they had to call the Avengers avengers assemble in the uk just so it didn't trip over copyright with the avengers that makes sense tv
0: series because the avengers is still a property the original avengers not the marvel avengers Hmm. it's still a property that's somewhat popular over here still
1: but anything else i just don't understand no i don't get it and it's patronizing really because it's kind of saying the audience that this is for is not internet savvy and doesn't realize when things are coming out and it's just a very old-worldy view of marketing
0: i would like to know what research and what knowledge goes into the changing of these titles because it's completely baffling to me yeah and i don't understand what the title a world beyond adds to the tomorrowland moniker no because it doesn't change it whatsoever no <laughs> it just makes it feel like it's the beginning of a franchise and i guess that's what they want with
1: the warcraft one as well they yeah, want to feel yeah. like they've got their own lord of the rings moniker because i'd imagine if that fails people will be calling it warcraft the beginning and end yeah <laughs> i might eat my words on that one but we'll see fingers crossed you will i would probably be right
0: yeah <laughs> But yeah, I think once I got out of the IMAX screening, you were my first port of call. I immediately called you up and for a good half hour, Mm. just reeled off at you because Tomorrowland was a film that hurt me. I felt like it hurt me personally. Yeah. And I had to vent and you were on the receiving end of that. So lucky, (laughs) lucky
1: you. You really sold it to me. I know. I
0: was raring to go. We will get into just what I thought of Tomorrowland and what I continue to think. But on Best Forgotten Movies, we always like to provide a little bit of background of our subjects before we actually start to rip them apart.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So what is the history behind Tomorrowland today? This was a Damon Lindelof-led project initially, though, wasn't it?
0: It was, yeah. In 2010, Lindelof actually opened discussions with Disney about a modern science fiction film that used Tomorrowland Park as a basis. Mm. So that's how far it goes back. And it wasn't until May 2012 that Brad Bird was brought on board as a director. Mm. And he was looking at the optimistic science fiction films of the 50s 60s and 70s as being his inspiration what he could bring to tomorrowland
1: all oh, right okay
0: i can see the type of film that he's taken from um because even back then science fiction had its darker side yeah there were the monster movies of the 50s and 60s the all atomic bomb movies yeah he was more so looking at the films that presented an optimistic future mm. where things tied themselves
1: up in a nice happy bowl but it seems like they took those other films with them as well
0: yes they did because tomorrowland is a film that ends happy only Only on a surface level, in that if you look any further, it's not happy whatsoever. No. But uh, we will get into that later. We'll delve into that further later. What's worth noting is that during the production, Brad Bird was asked to direct Star Wars Episode 7 while he was in pre-production on Tomorrowland. And he does say, for a moment there, I thought it would work out to do Tomorrowland and go right onto Star Wars Episode 7. But there was no way to make the schedule work and give Tomorrowland the attention it deserved. So he was put into a position where he had to choose either going on to do Star Wars Episode Mm 7 or Tomorrowland. And he chose Tomorrowland because he says it was closer to his heart. And it's rare to do a film of this size that's also original. So those opportunities can't be missed either.
1: Yeah. And I get that. Yeah, I understand that that at the time. Yeah, because that was what everyone was hoping as well, because films like this don't come along that often. It's kind of a shame that we had two films in 2015 that were both very large scale original properties that both crashed and burned. And obviously the other one I'm talking about is Jupiter Ascending. Of course, yeah. And uh, it's a real shame that the scope for more original property ever dwindles.
0: So when a film like this fails, it hurts us all, really. Yeah. And I do think that the decision to make this film, both on part of Damon Lindelof and Brad Bird, it's an admirable decision. Yeah. I really appreciate that they went off to make an original property that although it's based on the Tomorrowland brand and park, Mm. it's really not as well known that it's going to sell across the world as a brand. It's not like Transformers or Star Wars or anything Mm. like that. It's a theme park at Disney. Yeah, so it is an original property. Yeah, and so I do think that the decision to make this film is admirable. I think the message it has is odious, but the decision to make <laughs> it is admirable. Yeah, yeah. Now, Andy, you've actually been to Tomorrowland, and yes. and I have not. Many different the, versions. The closest of. I've been is to Euro Disney which just has a small Space Mountain section that's, well, that's slightly that, Tomorrowland-esque. That's
1: called Discoveryland. I mean, it's not actually that much smaller than any of the other Tomorrowlands. It's just tonally different. It's some more... Um, well, there is a Jules Verne ride yeah. as
0: well, like a walkthrough ride at Discoveryland, which very much reminded me of this movie, especially the Eiffel Tower
1: section. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, that's more sort of Jules Verne, H.G. Wells land, whereas Tomorrowland in Disneyland and Florida and also Tokyo is more of a showcase for new ideas and new technologies and was so all the way up until Walt Disney's death really and it was around that time perhaps due to his death but also due to other factors of it constantly dating yeah that they decided more and more over the years to go to a retro feel for Tomorrowland kind of like Discoveryland but not as um defined but just go for sort of more of a 1950s view of what A retro future. Yeah, of what science fiction and the future would be like. They've sort of gone on that way ever since, but there are distinctive landmarks in all parks, uh, obviously most notably the Space Mountain, Mm -hmm. which was built in the mid-70s. It's kind of become less and less focused as time's gone on, especially with the... um, intervention in actually all three lands of Pixar-related properties creeping into Tomorrowland. Especially things like there's two different Monsters Incorporated attractions in Tomorrowland, which I just don't understand why they're there. Not that I don't like the attraction, they're just in the wrong place. Yeah,
0: the placement is baffling. Yeah.
1: But I think what they're going for originally, and this is kind of definitely more in the the Walt Disney era of when he was actually alive, is to really showcase and promote new technologies to the world. Mm -hmm. And that's what it originally was for. And that seeped into the World's Fair as well, because a large part of Tomorrowland, the movie, focuses in on the New York World's Fair, which Disney was a part of. And obviously, he was pushing forward new technologies of his own yeah. in order to promote other people's products. So there was a bit of give and take there. But they're definitely taking that kind of 1950s and 1960s era of Disney the most. Well the working title for this film was actually
0: 1952 Yeah, very yeah. early on when they were keeping the title under wraps which I don't know why they were keeping the title under wraps because I don't think the title Tomorrowland is really going to create many ripples in the water but for really die hard Disney fans yeah, and Disney yeah. Park fans but for general audiences it did little but create a mystery box around the advertising very early on yeah. which they abandoned shortly into the advertising because they realised it wasn't working for them to yeah. have this mystery box element that was going to be unraveled through the marketing
1: yeah i think star trek into darkness crippled yeah. the mystery box it
0: did it pissed in the soup it did. i think
1: Spectre's the only film that's not learned from that
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> People will obviously point towards Star Wars The Force Awakens as being a mystery box driven marketing campaign, but I don't think it actually was. I think it was the right amount of story and the right amount held back for that marketing campaign. There was no reveals or anything that were kept back other than the big ones. Where was Luke Skywalker was the crux of the entire film? It wasn't a mystery box to be opened.
1: Well, I think the thing with the mystery box, the mystery box always fails because most people know what's in the mystery box that's where mystery box movies fail because like again we knew that it was going to be khan and they kept saying no it's not khan and then it was khan yeah and the same thing with blofeld we all knew it was going to be blofeld and they kept saying, no 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 it's it's the franz oberhauser oh it's blofeld
0: <laughs> that's it that mystery box just came down to yes
1: or no whereas with star wars there's an infinite amount of possibilities yeah so it's not as locked off yeah. in terms of their story choices because obviously with specter they kind of really hem themselves in by calling the movie specter yeah in a way they probably should have called it something else but mm-hmm. i think they were sorry riding on yeah people are going to see it because it's called Spectre yeah but everyone's expecting Blofeld but they should have just been yeah it's going to have Blofeld in it and then
0: could you imagine the Dark Knight if they kept the Joker hidden for half the film (laughs) Like, the main bad guy looks very much like the Joker, acts very much like the Joker, and then halfway through goes, I'm the Joker! To the surprise of no one. Yeah,
1: I mean, well, they partly did that with the Two-Face character, because I remember going in, people thought that they were going to set that Two-Face character up for the next film, but in fact, they did it all in the same film. But you
0: always knew that he was going to become Two-Face. Yeah. It was just a matter of when. Yeah. And even in the trailer, they do drop hints. You do get to see a little crisp of his face at a couple of moments, a couple of shots that they had chosen. So it wasn't something that they were particularly... particularly hiding, people just thought it was a setup for a sequel Mm. that it wasn't going to be as self-contained as it ended up being and I think with Tomorrowland as well they did have a legitimate mystery box one of the very first publicity photos was of a box that had been opened and in it was a lot of Disney memorabilia including a picture of Walt Disney himself all right very early on it was like this is the mystery box and it wanted people to walk away asking what is Tomorrowland But instead, nobody cared. Yeah. And I think that kind of set them off in the wrong direction for the marketing. And it was something that they never got a handle on from that point onwards because they had to readjust so hard and give away so much with the later trailers that
1: they kind of like pulled the rug from under themselves. Yeah. I imagine it might even have set them off in the wrong direction writing wise as well because, I mean, we'll never know what some of the earlier drafts are like unless, you know, they get leaked later on. But. It does feel like outside elements creeped in. It does. Because the confidence had been lost in terms of what the property was going to be. There is a sense
0: that this is a script that has been tampered with and... I guess we, when we talk about the film I guess mm. we've got to start actually talking about the film because yeah. there's very little I can add in the way of history because again this was on the face of it a very smooth production mm. we don't know what's actually happened behind the scenes if anything has happened at all
1: and the Disney are very good at covering their tracks these yeah. days so we can't really get that much into any problems that the film may have had or exactly. not <laughs> well that, that's
0: it they have a habit of simply brushing their failures under the rug mm. they don't like to elaborate on them some studios even like Fox will go back to their failures Disney just like to sit on them and make sure that they never come to light again yeah they
1: they go into lock and key I mean the biggie is always Black Cauldron because that film hardly ever comes out of the woodwork yeah same with John Carter as well that's another one
0: yeah that was another one that was released with a bare bones blu-ray and that still is what's out today yeah I imagine there are many half finished documentaries (laughs) just on the cutting room floor somewhere and and Tomorrowland is very much of the same ilk there's no commentary and uh, there's a very sparse, very short making of documentary on there. Mm-hmm.
1: It's always telling with that because when they have a big hit, Disney go all out. But then yeah. when they don't, it's just like, yeah, that didn't happen.
0: I think they just stopped spending on it as well. Yeah. They yeah, immediately yeah. just cut the spending on it. They don't want to put together a package, they've already
1: cut on their losses. Yeah, well, they're quite efficient in that way. Yeah.
0: So anyway, enough about yesterday. Let's cast our eyes to the world of tomorrow. Andy, what did you think about Roland Emmerich's The Day After Tomorrowland? <laughs>
1: Well, obviously I was going in to watch it prepared with what you'd already said to me. I do apologize for that. (laughs) Yeah. So I already knew that it was going to fall apart at some point. Yeah. It probably fell apart a little bit later than you originally said, I think, because it's probably only the last 20 minutes where it really just falls apart. It was really frustrating experience because I was watching it and obviously it's a two-hour movie. So I was a good chunk of the way through the movie going, oh, this is great. This is really, really good. Yeah. This is very different to anything else I've really seen. And then we got to Tomorrowland and I could just tell something was wrong immediately as soon as we get into Tomorrowland. I mean, there was a couple of flaws here and there beforehand, but on the whole, it was winning me over with a lot of the elements. But then as soon as we got to Tomorrowland, I was like, oh no, this is what it's added up to. Yeah. And unfortunately, what it added up to is very by the numbers, what we've seen before, many, many times over. And they're really quite pessimistic as well, which was really at odds with the rest of the film.
0: That's it. The visuals themselves are so bright and colourful and lend you the belief that this is a hopeful film with a hopeful message, but it actually ends on a very pessimistic note with very little change yeah but i had a very similar experience in that the film won me over so i was going in there expecting something that was going to leave me probably negative mm. and although that's come to pass for two acts it won me over mm. and i was a firm believer in the film and the moment they got to tomorrowland it shit the bed so hard and so forcefully it ruined the whole fucking room
1: yeah it was like the director had been fired it was a bit like a a Fantastic Four situation where the director yeah. had been fired and then somebody else had taken over the second half of the film or the last act of the film.
0: In terms of tonal shifts and sudden changes, it reminded me very much of World War Z. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That that. another another Lindelof
0: yeah although I can't really blame Lindelof no, for World no. War Z because that was a film that he actually somewhat saved in some Ish. way he, he <laughs> changed something from being utterly awful into average yeah it's a very forgettable film too forgettable for us to actually cover yeah but that was very much what it reminded me of it felt like a reshoot the moment they get to Tomorrowland the film grinds to a halt and it becomes something else completely and all the inventiveness and creativity is just out the window
1: yeah it did feel to me like a third act that had been reshot yeah maybe 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 not by a different person but just at as little expense Mm -hmm. as possible because you could tell in the camera angles and the way that it was put together that it just didn't have the same level of creativity as the other bits but that was kind of almost superfluous to the fact that the message that was coming across was uh, quite poisonous actually and completely the wrong kind of thing to talk about with a film of this nature.
0: It's a film that's essentially for kids as well. Yeah. And it's speaking specifically to like 15 year olds that have the world in front of them. But actually, the film ends on a note that to kids, is just awful saying that if you are intelligent and you are bright and you are a dreamer, the best you can hope for is that you can leave Earth behind to join an elitist super heaven because Earth isn't worth it anymore. No. And you think that's going to be the message of the villain. And that ends up being the message of the heroes to go out there and bring all of Earth's dreamers back to Tomorrowland. And leave Earth completely.
1: Yeah, because Earth is not good enough. Yeah,
0: because Earth is not good enough and we cannot be trusted to save ourselves, us plebeians down here. It's not like Harry Potter where it's like going off to Hogwarts and then they return with all this new knowledge and thinking, how can we better this place? It's literally just like a mass exodus of the Earth's smartest, brightest talents. No wonder the Earth is in such a terrible state because Tomorrowland has been poaching our talent for decades and decades and decades.
1: (laughs) I think that's the thing that bothered me in a way about the way that they set up Tomorrowland is that they found a way of excluding themselves from the rest of society in order to be like this. And the fact that they were going to integrate themselves back in with society was cancelled. Yeah. But even the fact that they even segregated themselves off in the first place seemed a bit weird. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think its messages get very mixed and also very confused and uh, are quite naive at the same time as well. Because it seems to have this viewpoint that new ideas and new technologies are completely disassociated with everything else that's going on in the world. Yeah. And that this stuff is completely separate when in actual fact, in reality, it's not. It's yeah. all connected to each other. And I think that's where the film really missteps because it confuses that main aspect. And everything stems from that, really. And that's where the generic parts of it come into and actually really damage the whole film.
0: Yeah, and for two acts, I thought it was heading in a good direction. And I thought I could see the film laying out in front of me. And i could see where it was going and i thought it was heading towards a message that i could really stand behind because the film starts off and it uses the dismantling of the space platform the launching pad as a plot point and it's using it to say that the world is in reverse in terms of uh, technological advancement because we are now dismantling our future in essence by dismantling the space program and i got that and i could stand behind that and i was like is this film going to be about us finding it again that sense of discovery. Yeah, yeah. And that's where you think the film's going. And when, when you hear characters talk about Tomorrowland, they say, oh yeah, Tomorrowland is this magical place where everybody's technologically advanced. And everything we see of it leads us to believe that as well. It's this vastly technologically advanced world. And one character says that we think that they were going to share their um, technologies with us on Earth, and then something happened, and they decided not to. And I thought that was a setup towards the end of the film, for Tomorrowland and Earth to become one again, for that plan to go through. And it does seem to be set up in the film, but then two acts in, it abandons it completely. And part of me wants to say it's studio interference, that they said, no, no, you want to hold something back for a sequel. That's what Mm. the sequel can be about, Tomorrowland and Earth integrating, but... Because it doesn't go that far and because it ends with just Tomorrowland being this exactly the same place as it was when we see it at the start, only they're allowing slightly more people in. Yeah. It still has the same problem. Tomorrowland is an elitist heaven.
1: It's it's funny in a way because this is a thing that really puzzled me because it uses a lot of Disney imagery. Obviously the film is yeah. called Tomorrowland. Part of it's set in the World's Fair, uses quite a few landmarks. Uh it does some yeah. songs as well. Like they use Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, which yep. is from Carousel of Progress. It's a small world after all. Yeah, and it's a small world. But um it's kind of funny that it uses all that. But then the message that Disney himself always tried to get across is that if you push someone hard enough, they can create wonderful things. But also the fact that anybody had the potential to be doing yeah. this. It muddles that quite a lot. Like even just the fact that um there was this like little index of their percentage of how good they were. Like the Britt Robertson character was like yeah. 73%. And obviously they were joking that Frank was only 41%. Even though that is wrong. Yeah. Because that's a nothing figure because yeah. everyone has potential. It's like you've got to tap into that potential and push someone hard enough. It's not about how you are now. It's about how you can be. And that, yeah. that message gets fumbled. And the other thing that really bothered me and the fact that it's a Disney film with all this Disney imagery and mentions all these other scientists and inventors and dreamers. There was no actual mention directly of Disney himself. No, they just seem to
0: skirt around Disney himself yeah. as a figure. I wonder if it's something that they thought might be too cute. But at the same time, it does feel like the elephant in the room now because they've refused to acknowledge Disney in any way, shape or yeah. form. But they will acknowledge all of these Disney products and Disney places and yeah.
1: Disney-based things. Yeah, and my only thought for that was because they were making... Um saving Mr. Banks and they didn't want to have a crossover step on the toes yeah, yeah and that's the only thing I can really think of is the fact that Disney himself as a man isn't referenced at all yeah in the film Because I thought that would have been a really cool idea.
0: Yeah, I think at one point as well, people did think that George Clooney had been cast as Disney. And then they thought that, oh no, Hugh Laurie's been cast as Disney. And then it turned out neither had. But I don't know, I think um, George Clooney is supposed to embody Disney in in some way in this film. I remember him saying something about that very early on, but I don't think it really comes across No, because the character's
1: so pessimistic for quite a large proportion of the film. He is, isn't he? He is when we
0: see him. And going back to that index thing as well, See, that's another point that I thought that they were setting up for upheaval by the film's end. I thought that they were setting up that Tomorrowland is being run incorrectly mm. and it needs to change. In order to save both Tomorrowland and to save Earth, we must become one. And I thought that's the direction it was heading in when I first watched it. And I thought yeah. that was gonna be great. And All these scientific ways in which they are judging people Mm -hmm. and embrace a more emotional way and embrace the idea that anybody could be special Mm -hmm. if they put their mind and effort and heart and soul into it. But none of that changes by the end. All of that is still in place. All this indexing and even one of the robot children at the end who they're the ones that leave these pins for the chosen few. Mm. Even they say the parameters are a little wider this time. Can you please explain them any further it's like why have you still got parameters like you know you're still playing within this box that you've already got Mm. in place there's scientific
1: reasoning for who to choose yeah it's a really really frustrating experience and it's crazy considering how much attention to detail they put in in the first two-thirds of the film because there's so much attention to detail in everything that they're looking at. Yeah. Like, you can tell that this is something that means a lot to the people that are making it.
0: Yeah, it is a well-made film for the most part. Mm. It looks sharp, it's inventive, it's creative, just in the ways that you would expect from Brad Bird. I would say that in terms of the writing... Even for a Damon Lindelof script, for two-thirds, it's a very strong Damon Lindelof script. But then again, his strengths have always been in setup, never in payoff. And this is just yet another Damon Lindelof script that fails by its end, that just can't land the ship.
1: It's always interesting that his ideas are always really inventive, but then when it comes to wrapping things up, he always leans back on conventional structures and conventional ideas. They're always at odds with everything else that he's doing. Which yeah. really makes everything stand out even the more so because I do genuinely think that he's got some great ideas really great ideas but um he needs that person to say no this isn't right yeah and it's kind of strange because i always thought that brad bird would be that person that would I say i remember you no, actually this saying right.
0: to me in the lead up to the release of tomorrow yeah. that perhaps this is going to be the film that damon linloff really does well with because he's got brad bird at his side mm. and we were really waving the flag for them in this one
1: and that's the, probably the most shocking thing the fact that this is also a film that's been written by brad bird yeah and doesn't pay off in the conclusion because that's always something that brad bird has been Strong at. Yeah. To be honest, he's always been strong all the way through, but his payoffs, his conclusions have always been really innovative.
0: Yeah, everything always comes together in creative ways. Mm. All of the themes, all of the story elements, they always come together and kind of intersect in a big creative and innovative way. I can't even say it, Mm. (laughs) but they they always do. And this is a film that does not. In fact, it falls apart.
1: I think that was the most disappointing thing, the fact that everyone has that film or that project that doesn't quite come together. And this is obviously his but uh, yeah, it did feel overly so that you couldn't work out a more inventive way of concluding the story. Mm. Yeah, because I guess we're going about this as well because like, is this what they really believe or is this something that's been tampered with? or Because yeah. like, something doesn't quite add up here.
0: No, because one of the things that I think that happens in the end that really irks me is that it uses its story to criticise other films and other pieces of media, really. I mean, to, to give away the film's end here, The whole crux of Tomorrowland is about this counter and what this counter is and why it's counting down. Uh, George Clooney has created it and Britt Robinson's character is trying to find out just why it has been created and what it does. She finds out that it's a countdown to the Earth's destruction and it's from this machine in the sky in Tomorrowland and it's showing them the future of Earth and we see all of these destructions, like all of the apocalypses have happened at once, all of the possible apocalypses. And they soon find out that actually these images are being beamed directly into the minds of everybody on Earth. And Hugh Laurie says that we saw Earth's destruction, so we gave them a vision of it. And instead of taking it on board, they reveled in it. And they placed it in the games, the films, the TV, and stuff like that. And he really rallies off about it, about us kind of reveling in our own destruction and using films as well as a basis, using media to criticise us as the way we approach the apocalypse and the way we approach destruction. So he's essentially criticising doomsday machine films whilst also being a doomsday machine film that flirts with the end of the world. (laughs) It's really hypocritical and it just makes me think that there's a big studio note somewhere saying we need some earth threatening event. Yeah. Because Damon Lindelof wrote this really long article that I think we spoke about previously on one of the episodes in which he really kind of rallied off about studios and his experience rewriting Star Trek Into Darkness and I think a little bit of Cowboys and Aliens and about how studios need these world shattering events like the world needs to be in danger. No, no, no. The universe needs to be in danger. No, no, no. All of reality needs to be in danger. <laughs> and he just says it keeps getting bigger to the point that it no Longer matters anymore, and we no longer have a frame of reference. And we think that this is the film that's trying to criticize that type of filmmaking, but mm-hmm. it also is that type of filmmaking it also does have a doomsday machine it also does show us visions of the world and complete turmoil nuclear bombs going off and tornadoes sweeping through valleys and shit like that it's got all of that in it so it has no right to criticize anything else especially when we've got mad max fury road in cinema only a few weeks before that is both an apocalyptic film that ends on an incredibly optimistic way It's a film that says that even in the face of the apocalypse, we will find our humanity and we will find what's good about ourselves and we will do what is right. And yet Tomorrowland is an optimistic sci-fi film on the face of it that ends with a really odious message that only if you're smart will you be able to get over this fucking place called Earth. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, that was a rant.
1: No, but it's it's really true because... It goes so off topic yeah, and it's so unnecessary that it, it just leaves you feeling really strange afterwards because it's like, what have I just seen? Yeah, I think for this film to really have succeeded in the way it should have done, it just needed to jettison that whole aspect and just focus on a much smaller story. Yeah, which I thought it originally was going to do. I mean, I think what it did, it basically um, it overpromised and under-delivered in such a big way for people that um, it just switched everyone off. It did, and because the yeah, the marketing wasn't so good, and and no one could really get a handle on what the film was because again, the film didn't really know what it wanted to be either. No, no, exactly. By the end. Yeah. So I think it just sent all the wrong messages out to people, and the people that were championing it would have been disappointed by it. I don't think it's pleased anybody. This no. film. It's kind of strange that this is actually the most recent film we've done so far, and yet it's probably one of the most forgotten. Yeah, it is. It's kind of weird. It really is. Because no one really gave a damn about it when it came out in the end, and uh, it didn't win anyone over at the time anyway, so it really just got buried.
0: Yeah, it did. And I think one of the things that they really dropped the ball on, even just to approach it as just an adventure movie. They really don't make the most of Tomorrowland. No. When we see Tomorrowland very early on and we see the visions of it and we see Frank's time as a child in Tomorrowland, I think you just said it promises a lot.
1: And they do nothing with it. It's all show. Yeah. And no substance. Like there's no connection because literally the idea of the when you see the Tomorrowland fully functioning, the way that it works is that it's the badge that lets you see it, but you're not integrated with it. It's like a a big test reel for what Tomorrowland could be, but we're never connected with it in any way. Mm-hmm. It's all show. Yeah. And they even like comment on it the fact that that particular vision could have been a lie yeah. and was just an advertisement. And that's exactly what it is. It's an advertisement for a film that we wanted to see. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And that we never get to. And it's kind of like that thing where um, it's a bit like a waiting for Godot kind of situation where we, <laughs> we're, we're trying to get to Tomorrowland, but then we get to Tomorrowland, we're still not, not at, at Tomorrowland. tomorrowland. Yeah. <laughs> even by the film, we're never at Tomorrowland. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's a really frustrating experience because you can see the potential. And um, this is the weird thing. I mean, there's a quote from Brad Bird from October of last year. So about a good six months after the film had been released and and underwhelmed. But um, he tried to rationalize it like this. So he said, people argue about whether we told the proper story or not. People ask, why did you spend so much time in a car when you could have been in Tomorrowland? But the movie was always intended to be a road movie, and its title seemed to suggest to some people that the whole movie was going to take place in Tomorrowland. We had a lot of ideas for Tomorrowland, but just running around Tomorrowland is not a movie. There has to be a conflict. It has to be somewhat interesting. We set to make out a fable or a fairy tale about what happened to the positive view of the future, and how we can get back to it and pursue that idea. For better or worse, we did. Now, with that quote, it seems to suggest that they couldn't find anything interesting to do in Tomorrowland, which does seem like utter bollocks, considering how interesting potentially Tomorrowland could be.
0: Absolutely. Let's find out how people live in Tomorrowland. Let's see if there are any kind of like conflicts between different ways of thinking in Tomorrowland. Let's get into that. Let's see who's
1: on what side. Because you can still get into the cracks in the edifice, but actually in the place that we're actually meant to be talking about and going to. Not just see it as an advert and then see it completely destroyed or Mm -hmm. completely run down. Because there's no middle ground between the two. It's like complete pristine advert style Tomorrowland. And then we're not going to show you Tomorrowland because it's all run down now. Yeah. So there's no balance.
0: See, this is the thing with this film and Brad Bird is that Brad Bird is a director that I love. Normally, everything he has to say, I'm completely on board for. This film and everything he said about this film and everything he continues to say about it it makes me question him, not as a filmmaker, because I still think he's a f- absolutely fantastic filmmaker, but as a storyteller. Yeah. And I'm just going to count it up at the moment as being just a miss. You get hits yeah. and you get misses. This is a miss. This is a yeah. misfire. And
1: also, I think you were talking about before we started, we're not sure whether this is the full story. And also because Brad Bird is still attached to disney and pixar yeah. he doesn't really want to sour his relationship with disney to the point where we can't work for them anymore of course So i think he's gonna if there were any problems he's gonna keep quiet about them yeah of course he is in fact actually going back to it i did have the funny feeling because i think i can recollect when i saw this imax preview i'm pretty sure this actually might have been after you told me about the movie uh. and after it was already starting to fail And I kind of got it in Brad Bird's body language when he was talking about the film it was kind of through gritted teeth like Oh, it's gonna be an awesome movie. Check it out. <laughs> um, that kind of thing. Yeah. You kind of got the sense that something might be off with him. Yeah, like something's happened.
0: Because that's the thing. It does turn into a studio note movie. Yeah. In that final act, it's not just that it fails as a film because it's so weird and unique and it's going off and com- it's completely off the wall. It fails because it turns into something that's incredibly cookie cutter and holds mm. so much back that the message that it leaves you with just leaves you cold. And it's got all those studio notes right there in it. And very little of Brad Bird's usual inventiveness and creativeness. Mm. It's all gone. All of the colour as well is just completely drained from the screen.
1: Yeah. Although one thing, I, and I said, I go back to that sequence because I do like the sequence that they showed in the IMAX. But um, my parents in particular were quite shocked at how violent it was. Yeah. Because, like I said, I think it's a great sequence in itself. I'm not sure whether it probably is a little bit too violent for the kind of tone of movie that they were going for, although it is great in itself. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of bits where she keeps whacking the shit out of that android character. Yeah, I know you were going to make It's like, is it that? a little bit too much? Like, yeah. there's a bit of a tonal imbalance in here and there. Not loads, but I, I just, it kind of spoke to me because the thing is, the kind of people who this movie should be for is for Disney fans. And if it's turning my parents off, and uh, just as a side note, my parents have been to Disneyland 35 times. Oh! And if it's turning those kind of people off, they must be doing something wrong. Something's gone wrong here because if you're appealing to people who like Disney World, they're not really going to like sequences like that. Yeah. And I think there's something else there where I feel they've gone a bit... um, They're not making this film for who it's meant to be for.
0: Yeah, it was the sequence that really sold me on the film. Yeah. Completely, but I am not a big Disney fan in terms of Disney theme parks or anything like
1: that. And I think that's maybe part of the problem as well, not just of the message. I'm thinking now, maybe it was that it was made for the wrong demographic or the wrong kind of people that wanted to go and see a movie like this. Again... We always keep going to that falling between two stools thing. Yeah. And maybe it ended up in that place as well.
0: It was always going to be a tough gig to make a Tomorrowland movie as well because it was either going to be a film that could hit with people that are fans of the Disney park and the Disney brand, which is something of a niche audience as well. And for everybody else, it would be the hard sell. Mm. And it was because for everybody else, Tomorrowland is just a new property. Mm. And I, I guess that's why it has elements like that. But I do like that sequence. I do understand where you're coming from. It is somewhat violent for what it is. But I, I like the inventiveness of it. Oh yeah, And the yeah, idea yeah. that there's just kind of, this is a house just laced with inventions. And round every corner, there's a new booby trap. And this is how George Clooney's been living for the past like God knows how many years, just preparing his house for this Yeah. What do you call audio animatronics? Audio animatronics yeah, yeah, coming for him. I love that idea. And at least it does deal with them and their demise in a playful way. Like especially yeah. when they used a the portal thing as well to disappear one of them. <laughs>
1: I mean, this is for me anyway, because like robots freak me out anyway. Yeah. So it was kind of overly freaky for me anyway. Where do you think that stems from, Andy? In fact, it's probably actually animatronics in general anyway, because that's where I think that there is that big elephant in the room of Disney not being there, because they they're probably the biggest element in the whole film. Yeah. The audio animatronics. I don't know why they called them audio animatronics in a way, because it's they're trying to pass it off as if it's somebody else's gig, and they've been there a long time beforehand but yeah. audio animatronics is disney's gig uh-huh. that's their thing that's what they invented as a studio it seems rather odd that you get an audio animatronic at the world's fair when that is actually the first real showcase of audio animatronics to the public yeah as an actual thing apart from the enchanted tiki room which came out the year before but 1964 was when audio animatronic figures were launched there was a, a showcase called great moments with mr lincoln and everyone was just wowed by it because uh, no one had ever seen anything like that before and also the carousel of progress which basically did the same thing where it was a 25 minute play based around the american family progressing throughout the 20th century it seemed odd to me as well that setting a sequence at the world's fair they actually focused on the attraction that was the least innovative of all of the attractions that disney created for the world's fair which was a small world which was actually created as a last minute edition They actually made that ride in about eight months. All right. From start to finish, it was like a very, very small time scale, and they were working on some of these other ones for about two years beforehand. Mm. But it seemed kind of odd in a way that 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 particular attraction, which was the one that wasn't as innovative as the other three, there were four attractions that they built for the fair and the other three were much more innovative than that one. And it seemed weird that they concentrated on that one. Yeah, And also because thematically it had the least to do with the rest of the film.
0: Yeah, I think it's them once more not making the most of what they have and the element that they do have because those audio animatronics anyway completely disappear once they get to Tomorrowland yeah
1: like that's why it feels like again like a a third act reshoot because there's no connection between the action that takes place on earth
0: they are actually added quite late into the film I think they're a half hour in when we are introduced to the audio animatronics and then they're out of the film by another half hour later
1: and there's no line to explain why that is so I mean I would imagine in my own head that because the people in Tomorrowland don't want to set foot on earth at all Mm. like it almost disgusts them that they would just have these little mechanical minions to do their bidding yeah there's not even any line that explains this i'm just i'm just hypothesizing here yeah there's no connective tissue between that section of the film and the rest of the film yeah to be honest you could probably divide the film into three sections that not really that related to each other like you've got the whole frank story at the start which is all the world's fair stuff yeah and then you've got casey's story which feels totally different to that and then you've got the whole third act which is different again they never really all quite meet up together
0: no they don't quite marry together Mm. and i do want to mention something about frank's story as well that set off alarm bells with me very early on when i was watching it in terms of it perhaps having a wrong message and that was very early on we get a flashback from frank and it goes back to when he was a kid and this is a kid that looks a little bit like george clooney yeah actually. he does actually look yeah. a lot like george clooney i didn't know if there was some digital tinkering going on but i thought wow that kid is well cast because he does look like a young george clooney <laughs> and we see frank as a kid and he's created this jetpack and he wants to show it to hugh laurie's character Nick, at the world fair and he does but the jetpack doesn't work And the character Frank makes this comment about how it would make people dream if they saw somebody flying in a jetpack. And that's why it's been made. And Nick says, well, when it works, come back. So off he goes and um, he meets Athena, this little girl Mm. who is later revealed to be a robot. And she gives him a pin and virtually tells him to follow her. So he does and he eventually ends up at Tomorrowland. We realize now that people were being interviewed there at the World's Fair and being poached to be taken to Tomorrowland. And that's what was actually happening. Mm. And the world's best scientists were being taken away. And Frank's been chosen by Athena against Nix's will. And once he gets there, he breaks his jetpack even further. And I thought that was going to be the moment where suddenly he realizes just what was wrong with his jetpack all along and fix it himself and overcome the obstacle Mm. that was set in front of him through his own willpower. And instead... A random robot out of nowhere just appears and fixes it for him, gives it him back, and then he flies away in his jetpack. Yeah. That's it. It kind of undercuts everything. Mm. I don't know if to just say, that. oh, well, Frank just deserves to be there because he's just a dreamer. It doesn't matter that he can't create because, look, he can dream. But actually, he's a really accomplished scientist and a really accomplished person. Yeah, because
1: it contradicts that later when you yeah. see how many things he has made in the meantime. Yeah, and all of them work perfectly. But yeah, that the, the message gets quite cloudy there because, yeah, it was somebody else fixing it for him. Yeah, a robot, something working. that had
0: been created by somebody else
1: Yeah, fixed the thing that he had created for him. And then gave him the thumbs up. Rather, yeah, exactly. Rather, rather patronizingly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was going to be a moment where suddenly he flies in front of Nick's land and goes, wow, look, I've fixed it. Instead, it kind of
1: comes across as a bit of a lie. Yeah, and you get the Nick's character just rolling his eyes, really, don't you? And then that's...
0: Yeah, I find their whole relationship somewhat underdeveloped as well because when we are introduced to Nyx later on, he's not aged a day. And he mentions that he's still drinking the shakes in the morning that mm. stop him from aging because in Tomorrowland, nobody ages. And I thought we were going to set up some weird father and son dynamic between them. Mm. Like, Nyx was the hard-to-please surrogate father for Frank. But they completely leave that hanging. And it would have been interesting to see when George Clooney comes back to Tomorrowland and he's this 50-year-old man and he still has this father-son relationship with somebody that looks very much his same age, you know, but
1: he's still trying to please him
0: in some way Mm. and that would be his
1: arc. Yeah, I mean, we'll probably go on to when we talk about the casting in a minute, but I do have problems with that next character anyway. But yeah, it's probably a good time to actually segue into the cast anyway. I do,
0: yeah. Let's actually start talking about the casting. Yeah, And let's start up with first what doesn't work, because we've already kind of mentioned it. But yeah, Hugh Laurie's in this film as our main villain, Nick.
1: I either feel that the character's been miscast or that his character is just not written right for that actor in the first place. Yeah. One of the two. Because I don't understand why he's the leader of Tomorrowland when he's probably the most pessimistic character in the whole film. And it seems odd that he'd be the ruler of Tomorrowland for so long. Yeah, I think the better character to have had there would be someone who's optimistic but has become so out of touch with reality. He's become lost in Tomorrowland and not sought what he can do to help actual reality in terms of the real world yeah. everyone else and has lost touch with that. I feel that would have been the better way to go, especially in terms of talking about the spirit of optimism because it would be more about talking about Yeah, you can be optimistic, but we need to balance this out in terms of what it does for everybody. But the character didn't seem to mesh so well with the actual world that he was meant to be ruling.
0: I think they were trying to set him up to go down that same road. Well, him really embodying what's wrong with films today and stuff like that. What's wrong with people is that we are doomsayers. And we are too pessimistic. And now this wonderful place is being ruled by a doomsayer. But it doesn't make sense for him to be.
1: And uh, the thing is, we never also got the sense that he was particularly inventive himself. No. Which seemed to be a problem. They just painted him as as your basic scientific snob. And that was about it. But you never actually see him do anything himself. He's like an area manager. Yeah. He's just there
0: to make sure that everything's moving smoothly at the supermarket.
1: And I just thought that was... That was the first thing that stood out to me in terms of this character, the way that they're treating him is not particularly interesting.
0: And I don't understand why there isn't any conflict at Tomorrowland, because Tomorrowland, when we first get there, when we first see it, i immediately thought geez what horrible thing has happened here we find out that no horrible thing has actually happened it's just the way it's run now mm. and we find out that there's nobody really challenging him no on the, on, on the way that he's running the place and how mm. he's turned it into this really dull looking sparsely populated ghost town mm. why is nobody challenging him on that because that's how i would set up this film i hate to be the person sat there saying oh i could do this better but I felt like it was setting it up as a place that's in turmoil itself. Mm. And you don't get that,
1: really. I think the better way to go would be to have set it in Tomorrowland and then see the cracks in the edifice. Yeah. And then work out how we can fix this. Because that's one of the other things. We can fix this. But really, it should have been about fixing Tomorrowland Mm -hmm. and getting it connected back with the real world. Yeah. And helping the real world. But yeah, it it went so off topic. You did. (laughs) But I I don't think these characters particularly helped either. But like I said, we were talking about Hugh Laurie. Yeah, and um, I really like Hugh Laurie, love him. It's kind of funny though, because like to the Americans, the way that Hugh Laurie acts is so at odds with how the British people know him traditionally. Yeah. Because traditionally, Hugh Laurie is the classic buffoon. Yeah, he's the best buffoon out there. He's
0: up there with Rowan Atkinson. Yeah. and well, Stephen Fry. How is it that these smart people make the best buffoons? <laughs> Honestly, smart people
1: love to act dumb, yeah. and
0: they do it the best.
1: Yeah. He's that kind of character, but then obviously, because he did house for so long and became really famous in America for doing that, that they kind of see him as this kind of grumpy character, yeah. And um,
0: and Nick's plays very much into that, he's yeah. virtually just house with a British accent and no wit, yeah. I mean, he's much straighter even than house, yeah, and much grumpier,
1: yeah. It doesn't, it just seems to really backfire because I don't think that should have been the character that was there. That character could have been played by anybody. Yeah. It doesn't take advantage of anything that Hugh Laurie has to offer.
0: In fact, the only line that Hugh Laurie gets to inject with any of well, his, his traditional, usual, Yeah, his traditional <laughs> characteristics is uh, his final line in which he just utters the word bollocks.
1: Yeah. And I was like, oh, why is he only like that all the way through? Yeah. <laughs> I think they just needed a maybe a slightly lighter touch with it. I mean, I think they I think they, they need to do that with the whole film. It needs to be a little bit more pantomime actually because Mm. if you're doing a breezy optimistic film even your villains have to be slightly more optimistic yeah and i think what the filmmakers confuse is obviously films have to have a certain amount of weight in order to land yeah but i think a lot of people especially i'd say writers and filmmakers these days especially when they're dealing with big properties they confuse weight with downbeat and that seems to be a problem with a lot of films these days they confuse the two they don't really get that you can have something that's weighty that's not downbeat. Mm -hmm. It just has to have substance. And there are parts of the film where they really get that. I mean, the whole relationship between Frank and Athena has that kind of weight. It does, yeah. But not in a downbeat way.
0: Yeah. I mean, talking about that Frank and Athena relationship as well, was it really necessary to go down the road of Frank being in love with Athena? Even as a 50-year-old man, he's still in love with this robot that Mm. looks like a 12 year old girl yeah i get what they're trying to do and athena as a character is supposed to be somebody that is ageless but still on the face of it there is a scene they're looking at each other they're making lovey eyes at each other and you think there's going to be the scene where they're about to kiss and i'm sat there squirming in my seat like what Mm. the fuck am i watching family movie guys yeah I liked the relationship up until that point. Yeah, I just think it's like, oh, you took it too far, guys. You just took it over that line. Was it necessary?
1: <laughs> mm. Probably be a good time to just talk about those two actors anyway, because we've talked about Hugh Laurie, but then there's yeah, there's three other main actors in this film that sort yeah. of carry the film.
0: Yeah, it's their story. I mean, George Clooney disappears for a large chunk of the yeah, film. Yeah, he's, he's gone
1: for a good forty odd minutes.
0: Yeah, he's introduced as our narrator, and it's one of those films where two people are trying to narrate the film but they're kind of trying to talk over each other mm. to tell the film properly yeah. and I kind of liked that framing device Don't I, man, I just like that it disappears entirely yeah it does and um, I like that they're in conflict with each other in terms of telling the story at least for the first 20 minutes mm. and then once Britt Robinson's story actually begins George Clooney's left behind for a large chunk of the film he mm. doesn't actually appear again until 50 minutes in
1: and this is where I kind of feel even that intro bit feels like a reshoot because the way that they introduce George Clooney, when the, we see him again, it, it introduces him like we're seeing him for the very first time. Yeah, it does. Because you see the feet, and then you move up to the torso, and then you get the face. Oh, it's George. Hey, George yeah. Clooney, sort of thing. <laughs> and um, we've had the introduction already, so I kind of yeah, feel like... Yeah, so it's not a surprise. I'd love to be proved right that this is all reshoot stuff, and the third act and the intro were a reshoot, because the main body of the film just feels so far removed from everything else. And again, like, introducing the character at that particular moment and the way that they make it look, it does feel like that was where the introduction of the character was meant to be originally. Yeah. And that the whole structure of the film was completely different once upon a time. I do wonder. Mm. Yeah, well, what what did you think of uh, George in this anyway?
0: I like George Clooney in this film. I think he looks like he's having a lot of fun. I don't think he's saddled with the best lines in the film No. Either. But, um, I think
1: it's just because he comes too late to the party. Like that, he's That's it. I think the problem is because you've got one character that doesn't know what's going on. She's trying to yeah. find out. But then you've got another character that does know what's going on and is guiding her through. But then you get the George character as well. You've got two characters that kind of know what's going on. You have to share that dialogue between them now. Yeah. Uh, which I think is why they hold off on him for so long.
0: This is a film where two of our main characters
1: know everything mm. they're just holding it back for reasons unknown i mean that's why i think the structure of this film might have been originally different because that whole opening where we see george for the first time in inverted commas athena isn't there because she just seems to drive off and leave casey at george's door yeah and it kind of seems to me was that whole sequence meant to be in a different place in the film
0: the way in which she just drops casey off on his doorstep and then drives off And then when we are introduced to Casey again, it's after the audio animatronics have sieged George Clooney's house and they've just managed to escape by rocketing out of the bathroom in a bath that lands Mm. in a lake miles away. And who should be there? But there's Athena in Mm. her car waiting to pick them up. And it's like, wait a minute, how does she know all that shit was going to happen and that they were going to land in this lake (laughs) in a rocket-powered bathtub and she was just waiting there for them? Mm. If that's the case, if somehow she knew all that crazy shit was about to happen and they were going to jump in a rocket-powered bathtub, why the fuck didn't she do anything about it? She's the only person that could.
1: Yeah. I mean, George Clooney does do lovable pessimistic quite well. He's a lovable grump. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely got that down. I'm not sure whether he needed to be as grumpy as uh, he was in the film.
0: No, and I also think because he's introduced so late, yeah, him entering the film is unfortunately a signifier that everything's about to change for the worse for this film. Because 15 minutes later, they're in Tomorrowland and that's when the film falls apart. Mm. And it's a shame that the film's not good for longer with George Clooney in it. Yeah. Which is a shame as well for Hugh Laurie because pretty much 90% of his role is within the parts of Tomorrowland that don't work.
1: So I think it's actually good to talk about the other two main characters because it's yeah, a that's testament that's... to the two younger actors that they pretty much carry the main bulk of the good part of the film. Yes, they do. These are the two characters of Casey, played by Britt Robertson, yep. and Athena, played by Raffy Cassidy.
0: Uh, let's talk about Britt Robertson first. I want to say that first let's address the elephant in the room. Britt Robinson is definitely too old for the character that she's playing.
1: Yes. Although I didn't pick up on originally that she was meant to be playing that character, I just assumed that she was a character in her early 20s. I didn't realise until you told me that it was trying to pass her off as like 15, 16. Yeah,
0: they were supposed to pass her off as being a 15, 16 year old, like the really optimistic teenager that's just about to make the really tough decisions about what she does with her life and what (laughs) she goes on to study and things like that. And I mean, she's supposed to be 15. She does look 25. Yeah. And as well as Britt robinson plays it because her performance is fantastic again you just can't get past the fact that she does look much no older you can't than she's buy that
1: to. in fact it helped me that I'd, i completely missed that reference because yeah. i uh, i just assumed she was the age that she was meant to be i don't understand when they do that because if it's obvious that the person's not as old they should just make yep she's that age yeah definitely there's no thematic significance to her age or no her um being on the cusp of adulthood or anything there was no thematic importance to that she was just a a youngish character that was basically an eternal optimist who was fed up of everyone around her giving up yeah and it didn't matter how old she was really i mean no it didn't she just not. needed to be young in inverted commas yeah definitely and that, that is it really yeah. and from that point of view i didn't have any problems so when you mentioned that she's meant to be that age i'm like <laughs> what
0: <laughs> there's something as well that I've got to address is that you've just mentioned it there then her character is an eternal optimist and she plays it really well I do understand that that's rubbed people up the wrong way when it comes to approaching that character because Mm. she is optimistic and she is happy and bright. And I know that people are often turned off by those type of characters, but I like it in this film. Yeah, And I like that she's also a politically engaged character. like She's actively trying to do something to better the world around her. Mm. And I love that aspect of the character, especially, like we say, if she's supposed to be a 15-year-old, it's saying even from a young age, you can make a difference. It's a shame that that's all abandoned later on and undercut by the fact she looks 25 anyway. But (laughs) um, I do really like that character. I like the way that she's written. I like the way that she's played. I like that she's a lot of fun and she's an adventurer and she's also constantly got a sense of wonder about her. Like Mm. she's discovering all the time and it feels like a very Brad Bird character to me. She would be at home in like The Incredibles or something like that as well. Yeah, Yeah, yeah.
1: And then you got the character of Athena played by Raffi Cassidy, who's actually from Worsley, not very far from here.
0: No, no, not far at all. Tell us a little bit about Raffi Cassidy. What did you think of her in this film?
1: I thought she was very, very good. I thought she played uh, the part really well without being annoying, but also she sold the fact that she was a robot. Mainly in the eyes, actually. She had those kind of steely eyes that didn't quite look real. And I think they basically made it so she only blinked in very strategic places. Yeah. And she was basically wide-eyed and unblinking for a for quite a lot of it. They kind of made a big deal out of the animatronics only blinking at strategic moments. And when they did blink, it was kind of twitchy. Yeah. Like it was manipulated. I think they kind of digitally manipulated their blinks and added a little kind of like, <laughs> it to it like a kind of mechanical like shutter. Yeah. yeah. She really sold it. And I, again, she had to bear the brunt of a lot of the exposition in the film. She was kind of like the Kyle Reese of this film. Yeah, she was. She was the person that had to tell the story whilst they're on the move. Yeah. And I thought she did it particularly well. I mean, and really held her own against some of these much bigger actors and considering the age that she would have been at the time, really sort of was able to, carry a large part of the film i mean i say they both were mm-hmm. and they did work really well together as a as a two for that sort of middle section of the film so uh, no i thought she did really really well and i said she was definitely one of the more compelling elements of the whole film
0: yeah i do think that she is saddled with the most difficult character mm. in that her character is the most complex because she is both youthful and young but also ageless and mature mm. and so she's really quite knowledgeable But at the same time, you've got these cheeky moments where she pretends to shut down just so she can get a couple of hours rest and not answer (laughs) any more questions and things like that, which are really childish and fun. Mm. It's tough to play because as like a little kid, she's got so much to do and so much to say and so much to deliver. And at the same time, she's supposed to be this action heroine as well. Mm. It's the toughest gig in the entire film. And for the most part, she does nail it. She does really nail it. And she's playing a
1: robot as well. Yeah,
0: and she's playing a robot. So So
1: (laughs) it is really, really tough. But I say all in all, it's quite a strong cast that just in some places was utilised really well, but in other places just wasn't utilised well at all.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got to mention as well, this is a film with a really strong couple of female roles at his centre
1: yeah in fact I think that's probably why that end bit bothered you because it did feel like a studio note because the film almost passes the Bechadel test until that last moment if you know what I mean because you get that moment where oh I did love you all along anyway it turns
0: her into a love interest like at the last moment at the last moment yeah. yeah
1: yeah the film kind of undoes that in the last moments
0: it's really unnecessary yeah that's it it's just really that's why I say it just
1: feels like that whole last part of the film doesn't feel like it's them and
0: it does come just before the worst moment which is just about exploding the giant doomsday machine in the sky which that's how Transformers ends although we do get
1: our oh bollocks moment we're in the middle that's true that's true slightly slightly better than that
0: (laughs) we've talked about the cast now And it it is a half-decent cast and not everybody is dealt with in the way that they should be dealt with or given the material that they truly deserve. But let's talk about something that I personally found really uplifting and something Mm. that I've got a lot of enjoyment out of even beyond the film. And that's the score by Michael Giacchino. Mm -hmm. I loved it. I loved it. Really strong themes. Brad Bird always excels, really, when it comes to scores. He always makes films that really complement Michael Giacchino's music really well, or vice versa.
1: Yeah, I think that's just what I'd say, where, where the partnership goes really well hand in hand, Because I do remember when they were working on Ratatouille, there's a nice little documentary on the Blu-ray about doing the music that was shot by Michael Giacchino's son. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because they go through a cue in Ratatouille where he didn't get it right. They got the wrong tone for the sequence. It's actually the sequence where Remy is, uh, has got the will of Linguini's mother, who's died, oh. uh, leaving the restaurant to Linguini. And um, Skinner is chasing after him. And they did it too light originally. It was, it was too breezy he completely missed the the urgency of saving this letter because everything was writing on it. They'd recorded it completely with the orchestra and looked at it and went, Nah, this is not right. This is like a really important moment in the film. We have got to redo this, and they went back and re, totally rewrote the whole scene, the whole sequence to what it is now. That just shows like that they weren't afraid at saying, right, this needs to be better. This yeah. is not quite right. So yeah, that's why I say in terms of the music in this and in The Incredibles and all that kind of stuff, that it always lands. It just lands. Did he yeah. do um, Mission Impossible?
0: He did do Mission Impossible. Yeah. So he the- actually did um, the JJ Abrams Mission yeah. Impossible Three yeah
1: because obviously he was a, a lost guy he wrote most of the music for he did for yeah, he
0: wrote pretty much all of the music i'm sure he had some underlings writing some yeah. extra themes and stuff but, like um, that. but his names on all of the yeah CDs. so
1: bar one film he's written music for all brad bird's projects and yeah, obviously the iron giant michael Kamen. michael Kamen, who may have written more had he, had he lived longer but uh, um even so a good partnership anyway yeah.
0: And I would say that The Incredibles is actually probably my favourite Michael Giacchino score. And it's also the best John Barry score that's not written by John Barry. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, I really enjoyed the music for it. got a lot of enjoyment outside of the film from the music. Yeah. He's had a good year for terrible films, Michael Giacchino, because he did Jupiter Ascending, and that's a great score. Yeah. Uh, He did Jurassic World, which isn't my favourite Michael Giacchino score, but I still quite enjoyed it. And Tomorrowland. Well, maybe one of them's not a flop, but two massive flops and one
1: skyrocketed uh, film. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but yeah, he's done really good with really bad material.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean with all the positives of the film, because I like I love the attention to detail that they put into the world's fair sequence. In fact, the building that they create for the inventor's seminar, the inventor's competition, looks very, very similar to the building that they had for the Magic Skyway, which was one of the four Disney attractions that they built for the fair. And the building that they made look, I'm not sure how much of it was real or not, but they made it look very, very similar to the one that they would have had for the Ford Magic Skyway. Even the way that they dressed the small world ride to look like the world's fair one, because that particular ride was actually shipped wholesale back to California. Yeah. And that's where it is to this day at Disneyland. It's actually the original one that was at the fair.
0: Did you know that Michael Giacchino actually has a cameo role in the film as the operator of the small world ride? Ah, right. Yeah, so
1: he actually appears there as well. Yeah, I just loved all that kind of stuff. And just, you know, they managed to get the the Space Mountain ride building yeah. into the architecture of Tomorrowland and, and things like that. I mean, I loved even when they got the Ursula and which we haven't talked about those two characters, the Ursula and Hugo characters, after they've been blown up in the police offices, they take that head out. It looks great because it actually, the thing is that head, although it looks rather grotesque, the actual look of it is very similar to how the actual audio animatronics look like in real life. Because yeah. if you've ever seen one without its skin on, they look very, very similar. Well, I'm
0: glad you actually mentioned that part now because the next thing I wanted to mention as being a positive is I actually like quite a lot of the action throughout this film. Yeah. Bradbird's yeah. always been good with inventive action. There's nothing really truly inventive in the Tomorrowland sequence at the end of the film, but there's a great jetpack sequence that mm-hmm. the film opens with. That's very inventive. There's a great reveal of Tomorrowland as he falls through the clouds from one cloud bank to another, and you just get this brief moment where he sees Tomorrowland and all its glory. Mm. That gave me chills when I first watched it mm. and um i really like the action sequence that is at the forbidden planet-esque nostalgia <laughs> store and you have these two characters what are they called ursula and hugo I think. hugo yeah. yeah played by katherine Hahn and keegan michael key mm. and i really like this sequence there's a great action sequence that follows as they chase and her about the shop with these very elaborate 50s sci-fi guns <laughs> that light up in really colourful ways and stuff. I was like, no, that's where the film is at its best for me. In those little moments, stuff like that where Brad Bird's at his most playful. Yeah. And there's this great moment where Athena uses a time bomb. It creates a sphere where time is brought to a halt within it. Yeah. But Casey's got her arms stuck within the sphere. Mm. It's like, I really like all that stuff. I thought it was really quite inventive, even though those characters do feel a little bit out of place.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think they just need to be more central to the story, really. They just crop up in that one scene. Yeah, they do. And then they're gone and done with, really. It's a cameo
0: role for both of them, really. And because they are really well played and they are really entertaining as characters. You just want to see more of them or
1: yeah, evolve
0: and, them in some other way. Yeah, Why couldn't they be the ones that also lay siege to Frank's house later on?
1: I don't know. I mean, obviously, they're there to kind of reveal that these yeah. are animatronics and stuff like that. Because there's the bit where Athena pulls her head off. Yeah, and uh, the it's, and it's, the guy—it's pretty
0: spectacular in the way that it's dealt with.
1: And the guy, you know, everyone—it self-destructs and everything like that. So you get the introduction of that idea.
0: And I love in that scene as well that they're essentially using our own nostalgia against us.
1: Yeah, um, which to be honest,
0: the entirety of Hollywood at the moment is using our nostalgia against us, <laughs> considering the films <laughs> that they're releasing.
1: Yeah, I think that's why. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing. I think that's why the film fails so hard that it, it just becomes so conventional at the end and and again it's very hypocritical it's very
0: much in the same way that Jurassic World failed and that it becomes the very thing that it's criticising and if that's your message you've got to know better and that's why it feels very much like a studio noted film Mm. okay so I think we're wrapping up our thoughts on Tomorrowland I mean is there any final things that you want to add things that we've missed throughout this entire episode
1: I think there's only one of the main things to really talk about is the fact that this is a film that does have a lot of ideas Because it's got so many ideas to play with, not all of them really are developed at all and some of them are just sort of touched upon. There's one main one where it talks about the creators of Tomorrowland, which it really just nods its hat to rather than really explores in any meaningful way. It's when they get to the Eiffel Tower and... You get into the little museum section where you've got the statues of these industrialists and inventors. Uh you've got was it Eiffel, Edison, yeah, the, and, um, Tesla, and Tesla, yeah. And you've got these four people. And um there's a little story that George Clooney's character, Frank, tells about how they came to discover this dimension that Tomorrowland's set in, and also the fact that these inventors didn't get along too well, or two of them didn't. And yeah, I was Edison just and like, Tesla, who yeah. famously didn't get along. And I was just thinking like Considering all the other characters that are in Tomorrowland leave such long lifespans without altering at all Why couldn't the film deal with the actual creators of Tomorrowland because I know there's actually a deleted scene That's set in between the small world boat ride and him going on the the actual dimension transport uh, The young Frank where it actually explains the whole backstory to Tomorrowland where it's just completely cut out of the film Which would explain quite a lot.
0: Is that the one that's actually made by Pixar?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's a little film that uh, literally explains the whole story behind the creation of Tomorrowland. Yeah. And uh, I just thought, why miss up on such a huge opportunity to have these four figureheads as characters in your film? Yeah. And have it be about them. Because you could have drawn upon those very conflicts that he's talking about as well. And because we're talking about Cracks in the Edifice in Tomorrowland, why couldn't it takes someone else to take these really intelligent guys and actually make them or or even just descendants of or something and yeah. just make them work better maybe
0: they've like uploaded their consciousness into machines or anything yeah, like that just, or just the computer systems and stuff
1: yeah and it just seemed like a huge missed opportunity and yeah. like they never really touched on anything meaningful to do with these supposed inventors of Tomorrowland
0: no they're just really given lip service the paid lip service and that's about it it's like here's people that's inspired this story that we've created but we're not going to dwell on them let's get past yeah. this yeah I
1: think the thing as well I, I just came as a thought to me the film never really lets these dreamers dream
0: no you're right we never really get to see casey dream no either we never see what her aspirations are we know that she is very much emotionally involved in nasa and a fan of it because her father used to be an engineer for mm. nasa but she doesn't have any dreams herself to go to space be an astronaut yeah, like what's
1: her special skill
0: i mean she's an optimist but she's never really shown as being a dreamer or a doer. Or a doer, yeah. Well, she is a doer in that she does go out there and she is proactive in terms of she goes out on her own to find out where Tomorrowland is, but she never actually um, creates anything to help it along, really, or yeah. anything like that. And it's kind she of ironic. She just plays in the wheelhouses of others.
1: Yeah, and it's kind of ironic that the it's only really the pessimistic character of Frank that's been the one that's been building loads of stuff. Yeah. But for other purposes, not for positive purposes.
0: What happens if she actually created something that gave her a glimpse of Tomorrowland? Like, she created something that could harness the pin's ability, that could make her interact with Tomorrowland in some way. Yeah. You know, just something like that just shows that she's smarter than... I think
1: that's what I think most people were annoyed about, the fact that this is a film that had so many possibilities, and they kind of stuck with some of the more conventional ones. Yeah, they did. And, um... Yeah, it's just a real missed opportunity of a film because, like I said, films like this only come round every once in a blue moon, and the fact that they bungled it is a real, real shame because yeah, of, it, it means hurts. that yeah, because it means that films like this get made less and less. Yeah, in a way, I feel there's actually more responsibility on filmmakers to make films like this than people who are making franchise films. Because if a franchise film fails, they can always make another one. They'll move on to the next, yeah. Whereas if you're making an original film, a big high concept original film like this, it has to be solid. Yeah. Because if it's not, then that's it.
0: Yeah, because so many other original films in the making fall to the wayside then, Mm. in favour of other brand names or franchise films. Mm. Um, Just going back to the Eiffel Tower for a moment, this is uh, the only last thing that I really wanted to mention was that I... Didn't think it made sense for the Eiffel Tower to be built with an EMP no. pulse emitter. When the rocket takes off into the sky, this EMP knocks out everybody's phones and all of the electrics for this. But what looks like like 20 mile radius or more,
1: like the whole of Paris, basically. Pretty much, yeah. yeah
0: doesn't make sense that they would have done that or made it to do that, considering that when they built the Eiffel Tower, there was no such thing as mobile phones or recording devices to record <laughs> it going up into the sky. I mean, not in the same way there is now.
1: Yeah, because if they were recording the devices, they would be mechanical.
0: Yeah, mechanical, yeah. So like, does it doesn't make sense. No, like,
1: yeah, I don't know. But the other thing I was confused by, why was the rocket there in the first place? Because I thought that's what they used to get to the dimension in the first place. So oh, why was gosh, it still there? Not. I have no idea. I was really confused by that whole part of the the film because it really does unravel once you actually
0: start to look into it doesn't it yeah unravel in a big way even the bits i really enjoyed
1: i think sometimes if a film's good all the way through sometimes you can forgive some of its inconsistencies whereas if it does fail you can kind of see how it unravels more yeah the seams show more don't they
0: yeah exactly so we've talked about retro future worlds now it's time for us to begin to discuss why tomorrowland has been forgotten today but in order to do so We must ask, was this film a hit with the critics? Did audiences hand over their hard-earned cash? It's time for us to take a look at the stats and facts. And first up, I have the critics' response, with (laughs) our Rotten Tomato reading of 49%. And that's after 239 reviews, 118 of them fresh, and 121 rotten. And an average score of 5.9 out of 10, which I would say is remarkably high. For this film, considering how it ends for me, I think a lot of these critics are just like rating it just based on its skin level, optimism, and brightness and mm. whatnot.
1: In a rare case, I'd say the 49% is probably more accurate than the average rating. Yeah. Because they'd say, yeah, 5 out of 10 would be fine
0: i mean i can see that i can see objectively how someone can rate it more so along the five out of ten mark considering that it is strong for two acts and it is a lot of fun for two acts and it's only in the final third that it all really falls apart in a big way and you really start to pick at the film but for me it's that third act hurts so much and harms the film so deeply that it colors the rest of the film just entirely different and for me it's more of a four or even
1: below, but only because it's so good at other times. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, is it's a well-made film. It and is. You can't really fault it technically. No, not again. Um, Again, it's in that script. And again, we don't know whether this is a film that has been tampered with. We'll probably not know for quite some time whether yeah. it has been tampered with because Disney are like that. They are very secretive yeah. about any problems that they have. And
0: I don't think Brad Bird is one to throw anybody under the
1: bus anyway. No, no. He's got too much integrity to do that i think
0: yeah i think so anyway um as to our actual reviews i've chosen i chose the empire review from ollie richards which he awarded the film four out of five stars and he says it's effortful in the most positive sense of the word bird and lindelof have thrown everything they have at this film and aside from a pause for breath at the end they've made something funny surprising and packed full of wonder I mean, I would agree with him for at least two-thirds of the film, yeah. but definitely not for the last act, and positive is not a word I would use to describe how this film ends. Yeah, it's
1: a bit like that Martin McFly moment at the end of the Back to the Future, where that's the 1980s view of what success means. Yeah. That seems to be the filmmaker's view of what the happy ending is, Yeah, which unfortunately doesn't really align with most people, because it's basically saying, only good people can go to Tomorrowland.
0: Yeah, only the people we choose yeah. can live with us in our elitist world. Yeah, it's
1: that old saying, pull the ladder up, Jack, and sod the rest.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's such an English term. It's yeah. an English phrase. <laughs> Unfortunately, we could not get a review from Roger Ebert due to his untimely demise. So I've instead turned to Devin Farachi of Birth Movies Death, and he offers a scathingly negative review. And he says in his final paragraph... I like what Bird is saying in Tomorrowland. I just don't like the fact that he has two hours of shaggy, pointless and often boring film hung on this point he's making. Yes, we could use some more positivity. Yes, we should be galvanizing the youth for the future, not making them fear it. But we should also be making movies with strong stories and structures at work. And we should be cognizant of the political messaging of a movie where the super-secret technological wonderland must stay hidden forever from plebs like us, unworthy of its rewards, which is exactly what I've been talking about throughout this entire episode. I also think it's a great review. Everybody should go read it. It's at birthmoviesdeath.com. But yeah, it accurately sums up pretty much everything that's wrong with the film. Mm. And my last point I have is that this film has an IMDb score of 6.5 out of 10. Curiously, it's not rated by that many people, really. Mm. Not for a film of this scale, really. Mm. So it wasn't seen by that many people. I think that is actually reflected in the numbers. So it's over to you for the actual box office numbers on Tomorrowland today.
1: Okay, and down to the, the hard cash numbers. Those
0: hard, cold numbers.
1: Yeah. We've uh, got a budget of yep. $190 million. So, like I said, this is a quite critical, really, because we're talking about a original event movie that cost a lot of money to make. Yeah. Because $190 million is not a small amount of change. No, it isn't. So in terms of total lifetime grosses, domestically, it made just under $93.5 million, which accounted to 44.7 of its whole gross. And in relation to that, the foreign gross came to just over $115.5 million, making for a total worldwide gross of $209 million million dollars
0: which is just shockingly low considering the amount of money that they've poured into it and then you consider on top of that the amount of marketing budget yeah. that they've allocated for this film yeah because that's, that's just
1: yeah. 19 million dollars over the allocated production budget
0: which uh, they only get half of that yeah and that's like a generous estimate mm. essentially they've made a 100 million dollars back on what will probably end up being a 250 million plus outset
1: this is like John Carter numbers yeah it really is yeah. it's
0: just as bad if not worse because I think John Carter made a little bit yeah. more more than this film I think John Carter made 300 million dollars worldwide yeah.
1: it seems to be in a line of, of big budget Disney movies some of them do ridiculously well yeah others do really really awful but none in the middle
0: no there's no middle ground <laughs> with these there's films no middle- middle in fact ground, no. I would say there's one film that actually did hit a middle ground and um it was, the reason we haven't got a sequel isn't because of that film, it's because of this film, Tomorrowland. Mm. And that's the Tron Legacy sequel. Yes. That was yes. a film that truly hit the middle ground. It made $400 million based on, I think, again, $190 million or something mm. like that. It started making money back. Then Tomorrowland came out. It was such a massive bomb. So big, in fact, they had to take the budget from the Tron Legacy sequel.
1: Yeah, just to cover themselves. Just to cover themselves, Yeah. yeah. Wow, when you have to sort of take a whole movie out of production to yep. cover another film?
0: And that was due to go into production by now. It should have already yeah. been in production now. Yeah,
1: wow. But um, yeah, it's opening weekend. It made uh, $33 million, which is, uh, yeah, really quite low. Really low. It had quite a wide release. It was uh, almost 4,000 theatres. That's
0: got to be up there for one of the lowest opening grosses for a film that's opened the widest.
1: And also, this film was in release for over 17 weeks so it made only $209 million based on 17 weeks worth of earnings. And if it's opening that low, God knows what some of those weeks must have been like. They've really tried
0: to help it limp over the $100 million line and it never did.
1: Yeah, just looking at the weekend that it opened to, you've got um, Pitch Perfect 2 in its second week, which made almost the same amount as Tomorrowland in its first week. (laughs) Uh, And I imagine that film would have been oh wow, yeah, a lot less like Tomorrowland's obviously 190 million. The budget of Pitch Perfect Two was 29 million dollars. Oh
0: god, I was about to say 30.
1: Yeah, 30. Yeah, a solid 30 million dollars.
0: And that's an Elizabeth Banks' movie. Yep. She directed and that,
1: and it's made its budget back in the second week. Like, just in terms of its second week earnings, God knows what it is. Say what you will about those films, they're money makers. And also, just to put that into context, it just made under $31 million in its second week. It was previous week number one, and it had a 55.5% drop-off. By that time, it had made $118 million.
0: Yeah, so that is a true money maker. Yeah. That's that's, uh, that's money well spent.
1: Yeah, uh, and then at number three, we've got Mad Max Fever Road, which was also in its second week.
0: Yeah, because I remember Pitch Perfect beat it on its opening weekend.
1: Yeah, because that made it. That would have made uh, $88 million by the uh, second yeah. week. But
0: it's an R-rated yep. film anyway, yeah. so that makes sense.
1: The, uh, the only other new film opening that week was the remake of Poltergeist, oh. which is a, a massive pile of poo. Uh, and that was at number four. We've got Avengers Age of Ultron in its third week.
0: No lasting impression from that film whatsoever. No. I enjoyed no. it. It was fun but I don't feel anything towards it now. It's so much lesser than The Avengers. Mm.
1: We've got uh, Hot Pursuit huh. at number six. That was supposed to be a big bomb, I think. Yeah. Uh, Far From the Madding Crowd at number seven.
0: My wife went to go see that and said it was very enjoyable.
1: And uh, Furious 7 at number the eight.
0: The classic Furious 7. The new Citizen Kane of cinema. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: Now in its eighth week. It's weird we mentioned that because Charlie's Theron from Fury Road is actually being touted as the main villain for Fast and Furious 8. Mm. So
1: Fast and Furiosa. Yeah, with 9 and 10 to follow. Yeah.
0: <laughs> They're just making one more trilogy, guys. Just uh, one only more, one more. Only one more trilogy of films. Nah, it's
1: only one more quadrilogy. We're just making one more 10-part series, guys. <laughs> and then we have the classic, the sublime, the wonderful Paul Blart... Malcop 2 at number 9. Paul Blot, more Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it definitely wasn't the easiest week for it to come out on because it's an oversaturated market yeah even if that film would have been at its
0: best even if tomorrowland would have been at its best it still wouldn't have done well within that week mm. so now that we've talked about the stats and facts the only thing left for me to do is to actually ask the two questions i ask at the end of every best forgotten movies episode and first up are you any closer to understanding why tomorrowland has been forgotten andy
1: yep yeah. Because at the end of the day, and I think I pretty much mentioned this at the start of the episode, it's a film that really fails hard to deliver on its promise. Yes. It was going to be a tough sell anyway, but because it didn't deliver really at all on what it was meant to be doing. Yeah. Yeah, it falls down really hard because of that. And uh, the people let the studio know about this. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, they they uh, they responded with their wallets or lack of them. Yeah,
0: exactly. Exactly. <laughs> It was a tough sell to begin with, going out to a niche audience that was poorly marketed and eventually left a sour taste in the mouth. Mm. So I don't think it was ever going to do well. And the film that they ended up delivering, because of its message and because of the way that it ends, I do think people are smart enough to pick on the fact that the film doesn't end with a message of positivity even though its visuals are bright and shiny. I think it left a lot of people walking away thinking there was something cold about the film. Mm. It wasn't one that people walked away and told others that they had to see it. And because Tomorrowland itself was so boring and so cold Mm. and so poorly realised once they actually got there and once the film arrived on its doorstep, that was the whole crux of the film. That was the one thing that really had to stand above everything else. And it didn't stand at all. No, And people didn't stand for that. No, so that's why Tomorrowland failed, and that's why it's been forgotten, and it deserves to be forgotten. Mm. And hopefully, it's a film that I will only think about every now and again, and just as an oddity in Brad Bird's otherwise excellent career. Yeah, yeah. And finally, is Tomorrowland one of the best of the forgotten movies, or should it remain best forgotten? You kind of just, answer that just in your last answered that. I've just answered that question. <laughs> I have just answered that question. I mean. <laughs> So I have nothing more to add. It's definitely best forgotten. It should remain best forgotten. And yeah, that's all I have to say about it,
1: really. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with you. And it's a real shame because there are some really, really good bits in it. But yeah, unfortunately, it doesn't add up to anything. And uh, it really fails so hard in that last act that all the other threads unwind as well. So yeah. it just becomes a bit of a, a nothingness. And it's a real shame because I did like a lot of the elements of the film and it starts off so well and sustains it for such a long time that when it falls down, it just falls flat on its face. Yeah. And because of that, it does have the tendency to make you feel a bit angry about the direction that they've gone in because it's so at odds and also just so hypocritical. Yeah. Why I'm always open to non-franchise films that are original and have new ideas and new ways of thinking of things and also new ways of tone. Yeah. As well, because that—that's the other thing that this film almost promised was it's going to be a different tone to a lot of other films. Unfortunately, it just got lazy and and just fell into the fell same fell into traps. The same traps as any other big blockbuster film that has to go through these hoops. Ended yeah. up just jumping through hoops in the end. It did. Yeah. Ended up just ticking boxes on a studio notepad. Yeah, when it could have been a grand
0: experiment. Yeah. Okay, so I think we're firmly saying Tomorrowland is Best Forgotten. And it should remain that way. And that's all we have time for on this week's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies. So please do get in touch with suggestions for possible episodes. Also, if you have the time to help us continue to grow our fan base, please rate and subscribe to our podcast page found in the iTunes store. Join us next time as we take on The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, a production so volatile it forced both its lead actor and director into early retirement. But until then, it's bye from myself, and farewell and adieu from Andrew.
1: Farewell, guys. Thanks for listening.